Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of YXE Underground. I'm your host, Eric Anderson. Happy New Year to all of you, and I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. I'm really excited to begin 2024 with a bonus episode featuring a really kind and passionate person in our community. Her name is Lucina Hickey, and she is the CEO of the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. The reason I reached out to Lucina is I wanted to do an episode focusing on the hospice at Glengarda. As you will hear in our conversation, Lucina has a very strong connection to the hospice and worked extremely hard for years to ensure its construction and its mission of providing compassionate and meaningful end-of-life care would be successful. The hospice at Glengarda is a 15-bed hospice located on Hilliard Street East and Melrose Avenue in Saskatoon's Exhibition neighborhood. My wife and I used to live on Ash Street and would walk by the construction three times a day because our dog Fred loved to walk. And it was really something to see this beautiful building going up in a quiet old neighborhood in the city. The hospice is governed by Emmanuel Health, owned by St. Paul's Hospital, and was Saskatchewan's first standalone hospice. I feel very lucky to have spent an afternoon with Lucina in her office at St. Paul's Hospital, learning about the work that went into fundraising for the hospice, why educating the general public was so important, and the impact a gentleman named Gord Engel had on her and the Close to Home fundraising campaign. Now, the plan is to do an episode where we take you inside the hospice at Glengarda and speak with staff about the work that they are doing. Right now, we're just working on finding a time that works for everyone. So hopefully that episode will come out in the next few weeks. But I really think knowing the background behind the creation of the hospice will make you appreciate the work it is doing for patients and families in Saskatoon even more. I started my conversation with Lucina by asking her when the idea for building a hospice first came across her desk. Well, you know, um, I have been working with St. Paul's Hospital Foundation since, uh, goodness gracious, I think 2011. Um, so it was interesting. When, when I first got to the foundation, I was told in no uncertain terms, next year we're going to be raising money for a hospice, which was really exciting. And a big part of the reason that I think I took the job was I just really believed in what a hospice represented and who it was for. Um, and, you know, 2012 kind of came and went and uh, it didn't happen. But, you know, that was associated to a legacy of, of, of reaching for a hospice that was about, you know, 20 years old at the time. Yeah, so um, St. Paul's Hospital, a lot of people might not know, but opened the first palliative care unit in our, our province, and that was in the late 80s, early 90s. And so the hope and intention always was that you start with a palliative care unit. It's a great place to manage acute symptoms for those facing end of life. And then the next part of a continuum of care is a hospice, right? Um, it's a bit um, of a more home-like setting. It's outside of the hospital. You're not in an acute environment. And you know, and it acknowledges that um, hospice and palliative care is not acute care. You're not trying to save someone's life. You're walking with them on that last leg of the journey. So um, overall, the goal to build a hospice, I think, started when we opened that palliative care unit. Um, but the realization of that goal ultimately came about 2017, late in the year, when um, our foundation uh, and our hospital um, got the green light from the Ministry of Health to proceed with our fundraising campaign. So 
A lot of people might not know um, that for hospital foundations to raise money for anything, uh, we need the cooperation and alignment of both the Saskatchewan Health Authority and the ministry. Right? So the risk becomes, you know, if we raise money for something, and let's say it's a, a cool piece of equipment or a new, you know, center of care, um, we have to make sure we can operationalize those, those, those pieces of equipment or those facilities. So um, the, you know, the stretch from, you know, back in 2011 when I started uh, to 2017 when we finally got that green light is representative of years of strategizing and lobbying and, uh, you know, engaging community to, to qualify our community's need for a hospice and then to quantify our community's appetite to donate towards a hospice and then ultimately get that green light from ministry saying, you know, we believe in this project, it's important, uh, go forth and raise money. <laughs> if, was there at any point in those six years, did you think like, oh boy, like this, <laughs> you're looking at me now, like <laughs> any point, like did you think, oh my gosh, this might not happen? Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, so, you know, um, St. Paul's Hospital Foundation has the role and responsibility of raising funds for St. Paul's Hospital. And so, you know, it was uh, 2017 and, and Bruce Acton was the CEO at the time and, you know, a, a lot of uh, appreciation and, um, and, and gratitude to Bruce for, for his role in this. Um, but we kind of agreed that this is something we'd been chasing specifically for about six years. And so we agreed that, you know, if at the end of the year, we did not hear from the Ministry of Health and we did not get that green light um, that we would have to turn our attention to something else because as everyone might anticipate, our hospital had other needs, right? Um, there were things, you know, in diagnostic imaging or the ER or the palliative care unit or, uh, you know, uh, the urology center of care that could use our time, efforts, and attention. So it was, um, you know, our responsibility to ensure that um, we were mindful of those needs and so we set a deadline for ourselves and actually the the story goes um it was i think december 17th was the arbitrary deadline that we set and we said you know if by this date we haven't heard from the ministry we've done our best um but we're turning our attention and so um i'm done work uh, every day at 4 30 and 4 30 came and went and i uh i went home and I was completely defeated because we put all this work into this project and we really wanted it to happen, but um, that last piece that we needed just you know, wasn't there. And so um, this is not usually how I deal with stress, but I went out for a glass of wine. I invited a friend. I was like, you know, I just, I just need to, to talk to somebody about this. And so we were out having a glass of wine and my boss, Bruce Acton at the time, called me. It was like, I think quarter after five. And he's like, you're never gonna believe it. And um, we had a letter from the Ministry of Health. Uh, at the time, it was Jim Ryder, and he gave us the go-ahead. So I went from a commissary glass of wine to a celebratory one in, uh, like, you know, 45 minutes. <laughs> that's a crazy, that's a crazy story. Um, so obviously, you had, a, you had a good rest of the evening there. So then when, like, how then do you get the, how does the process work then in terms of, of going from, okay, we've got, we've got the green light, now we got to start raising money. Like, how how does that work? Well, <laughs> you know what's interesting is is the way that the hospice worked is kind of the model that St. Paul's has adopted kind of since then. So what we did in 2017 to kind of position ourselves to the ministry to say, you know, 
this is a decision you should support, was to give them that business case and all of that information they needed to be, feel comfortable in that decision, right? So what we did is we um, we worked early in, I think it was 2014-ish, 2013, uh, with a woman by the name of Shan Landry, who, love her to pieces, is still very involved in our community in a myriad of ways. Um, but she helped us quantify the need for a hospice in Saskatoon, because it was always something that we thought, you know, our city could use one. Um, anecdotally, we shared that we were the last province in Canada not to have a hospice, right? You look at Calgary and area, they've got about 14. Uh, Saskatoon had, had none, right? So um, we knew that we probably needed one, um, but we hadn't quantified that with research, right? So we worked with, it was both the SHA and Chan Landry, um, compiled a report that said, yes, you know, Saskatoon needs a hospice. Um, it should be between 15 to 20 beds. And, um, you know, it should be in a neighborhood uh, that is residential and it should be integrated uh, into an existing body of care. So that is to say that what we wanted to avoid, St. Paul's especially, you know, who we are, we care for those most vulnerable. Uh, we wanted to avoid the first hospice being a private facility. Right? Um, because we didn't want cost to be a barrier to entry, right? Everybody dies. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. And so um, that was important to us. So we took that information and we created what's called uh, for our foundation a case for support. So uh, a way to help describe to our community our fundraising plans and what we had intended. And so we took that case for support and we um, issued something called a feasibility study. So you basically take your fundraising case and you have a goal. Um, and in your feasibility study, you learn that if your community is interested, if they think it's important, um, and you know, if at the end of the day they would be willing to support uh, the goal. Um, and so the feasibility study was very successful. Um, almost 100% of the people that participated said yes, they thought it was important. Uh, yes, they would make a substantial gift. Uh, we had a sense that the community would donate between nine to twelve million dollars on the high end, um, and then we took that information and we said, you know what, that we clearly can see our community needs a hospice. There's a there's a large appetite for the community to support this hospice, so we positioned the government to say we will raise all of the money required for the standalone facility. Um, we just need you to be there for operations because as a part of that feasibility study. We also asked the question, you know, is there anything that would prevent you from making a donation? And the community clearly said, we need to see investment from government. We need to see that they'll be there for operationalization. Uh, so as to suggest, you know, I don't want to make a substantial gift only to have it sitting there in a facility that can't be operated. So we took all of that information uh, up through, you know, chains of it was the Saskatoon Health Region just barely at the time and then the SHA um, and then that got its way up to the ministry and, you know, I'm grateful to a number of advocates and, uh, you know, community um, liaisons that helped drive that message home and uh, grateful to a community who demonstrated their their interest in their participation because ultimately uh, that positioned us to kind of hit the ground running um, when we got that green light. I, I, thank you for explaining that. That's, that's so interesting. Um, I want to ask you about the community engagement part though because um, I think for, for some people, like when, when they think of a, of a hospital foundation, it's like the things that you said in terms of, you know, helping within the, the hospital in terms of care, end of life care might not come to mind right away. Did you find that you had to, like, not convincing, but some education with the community or, or did they, did they already understand? No, 
Um, <laughs> you know, and, and that was, you know, our goal was, our goal, I'm sorry, was twofold. It was one, to raise necessary and important funds to realize a hospice. But the secondary goal, um, and, and sometime it was the primary goal first, because you had to start there, was to educate people as to why a hospice was important. Um, you know, we'd never had a hospice, so we didn't know what it was. Uh, and I'm saying we as in the community, um, and, and we didn't know why it was important. Um, you know, so um, that, was, that was part of the conversation was first to explain why something of this would, would be so valuable to the community and then secondarily follow that up with, you know, now that you agree it's important, you know, is this something that you would support? So the education piece was, was constant. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you go about the education part? <laughs> well, you know, um, this was a very interesting campaign. Um, and um, the reason for that was, was the pace at which um, we, we raised the money. And so when you think about, you know, the community's perspective and, and the global understanding of, of how we educate people about what a hospice is, we, we would relate that to kind of what we call our public phase of fundraising, right? So it's, you know, you're talking about it in a large scale way. Um, but during those quiet times, it was conversations with donors, right? It was sitting them down and saying, you know, this is what a hospice is. This is why it was important. Um, there was a certain element when we were having those major gift conversations of people who, who, who knew that and had actually been following St. Paul's you know, attempts to open a hospice for years. And so those, those were nice conversations, but there were definitely conversations, um, you know, where people didn't know about that. And, um, you know, I, I'm reminded of a story and I will never forget this story. I, I'd say it, it, it changed my life. Um, it, one such conversation happened when we were very early on um, in, in the hospice. But in order for me to do a good job of telling that story, I have to tell um, kind of a predicated story first. So, um, when we were working um, and waiting on that, that ministry approval, um, St. Paul's Hospital and the foundation actually worked in concert to um, you know, design the hospice. Um, we had blueprints of what the hospice would look like. We had the location sorted out. Um, we had actually already purchased the building uh, that we were going to be renovating. We um, knew what donor recognition was going to look like. We knew all of those sorts of things, right? So we were really ready to hit the ground running. Um, but I was in a position as a fundraiser where I wasn't allowed to ask anyone for money yet because we didn't have that necessary green light. So um, one day, it was in November, so this was um, before we got that green light for the ministry, from the ministry, and a gentleman walked into my office and he said, um, you know, a, a friend of mine on my curling team told me that you guys are raising money for a hospice. And I thought two things. I said, well, you know, that's about the most Saskatchewan way. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to say, that is such a Saskatchewan way. That's great. Yeah, it's the most Saskatchewan way you could find out about something typical. Um, and then secondarily, I, was, I got a little excited because you know, people are interested and people are engaged. And so you know, I, I, said, I said, you know, the answer to that question is, is we hope to be raising money for a hospice soon. I said, but you know, we're not quite there yet. I said, but I know what it's going to look like. I know, you know, how we're going to celebrate donations. I said, so if you like, I can, I can walk you through, right? And so it was at this point of time where we were very convinced, um, focused, I'm sorry, on the business case, right? So that was the logical side of my brain, and that's what was really leading this conversation. So I talked about, you know, um, 
how this was just a better allocation of healthcare dollars, right? If you're going to emergency, you know, one visit to the emergency can cost upwards of, you know, $1,800, let's say. And one day in a hospice is about two to $300 and is a much better experience for the patient, right? Uh, I talked about the fact that there's gonna be 15 beds and two, two spa rooms, one on each floor. Um, I talked about the fact that, you know, uh, we were gonna be ensuring similar experiences on the first and the second floor and, and all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, I remember being very focused on, you know, how much it was going to cost, how much money we were going to be saving, and why it was better for the system, and all those sorts of things. And um, he, he loved it. And I remember thinking, like, this, this thing's going to raise money by itself, right? People understand, they get it, people are smart. And um, so, you know, I, he said, you know, this is something I'd like to be a part of. And so I committed. I said, you know, when we get that green light, you'll be my first phone call. And so he was just about to leave my office, and... Um, the emotional side of my brain kicked in, the one that should lead these conversations. And I said, you know, I said, if you don't mind me asking, I said, is there anything in particular that's inspiring you to support this campaign? And I'll never forget, he stopped. He was in the threshold of my doorway and he stopped and he turned around and he sat back down and he said, um, I am 44 years old. I have four children under the age of 25. I've been married to the love of my life for 25 years, and I've just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And he said, if there's anything I can do to ensure my loved ones aren't spending their last days, hours, minutes with me in the emergency department, he said, well, goodness gracious, he said, that sounds like something I should be a part of. So I say it's an occupational hazard, but I started crying. I think I cry every time I tell this story. Um, he started crying, and um, we gave each other a hug, and I committed to keeping in touch with him. And so it was in January of 2018, fast forward a couple of months here, and uh, we had just gotten the green light from the ministry, and we were on a call with a very generous donor um, who had made a number of gifts to St. Paul's Hospital that we were in the process of realizing. So. Um, Fundraising 101 is just a point of gratitude, right? Um, if you haven't completed a project with someone, you don't talk about a different project, right? You want to execute on, on what they made their generous gift for um, and then steward them well. And so we were out for coffee, hoping to steward this particular donor very well. And it was actually the donor that raised the question and they said, I remember you talking about a hospice. Is, is that kind of on the go? And I said, you know, <laughs> um, just so happens that we got that green light. And the donor said to us, he said, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I, I don't really know what a hospice is or what it's for. And so I said, you know, I can't think of a better way to tell you why this is so important than sharing a story. And I shared the story of um, the gentleman that had been in my office, and I shared it anonymously. And um, this donor looked at us, and he said, is that true? And I said every word of it. And he said, well, how much do you need um, to, to build the hospice? And um, we said, uh, well, you know, uh, St. Paul's Hospital Foundation is taking on all of the costs for construction. So the, the goal is, is $9 million. We've committed to starting construction when we have 60% of that realized. And the donor said, well, how much is 60% of $9 million? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and so he pulled out his calculator, and, and the donor said, well, you need $6 million. And we said, yes, that sounds about right. And the donor then said, well, 
what if I just give you $6 million? And I remember my, my response being exceptionally articulate, and I said, what? <laughs> and he said, I will give you $6 million with two caveats. The first caveat was you must build that hospice as soon as you feasibly can. And the second was that you must tell that man that someone cared enough to do everything they could. And then I cried in public again, which again is a very occupational, it's a, ha it's a hazard. Um, and so I made good on that. And I followed up with a gentleman who shared his story and his name was Gord Engel. And uh, Gord was so moved by this, once again, we cried together in a coffee shop, um, that his first response was, what can I do? What can I do to similarly help? And where we landed was Gord and his entire family became the advocates for our campaign. They told their story. They shared um, what it meant to be facing an end-of-life diagnosis and what a hospice would mean to a family like his. Um, and it was Gord's story, ultimately, that changed the trajectory of our fundraising campaign. Um, it changed the timeline for the hospice construction. Uh, and it changed the way our community understood about why end-of-life care was so important and what a hospice could do. That, that's incredible. Thank, thank you for sharing that story. Like when, when you, like when you reflect on that, like yeah. it, is it just, like what goes through your mind? It, it changed my life. Um, I think to witness generosity like that, I think it gives you um, a certain sense of of hope and space um, and appreciation for what it means to be a human and to sit beside other human beings in, in this life and in this world. Um, to this day, I'm very close with the Engel family. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the Engel daughters um, got a job working for a hospice in Vaughan, Ontario, and I was able to give her her reference because she um, truly understood what a hospice was and the value of a foundation and the community support in that kind of care. And I just, I love that um, that story similarly impacted her. <laughs> um. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you uh, more nuts and bolts questions so you can, so we can, actually, so we, so we can, uh, so we can both get our emotion because that's like, oh boy, that's, but that's a powerful story to say the least. Um, so, so you get, you get this, the money that you need to start with construction. Um, and, and, you know, that, that was something that my wife and I and our dog Fred saw every day because we lived in the neighborhood and we, and we saw it when, I guess when when were sort of shovels in the ground, and then how how long until until it was it was open? Yeah, so you know, I, I hindsight is is so very valuable. Um, that donation came out of left field for us. So you heard me say that you know we had uh, worked with an architect, we knew what the designs were, so we were in a good position in that regard. Um, but it was still necessary for us to go to RFP, um, you know, to engage contractors. Um, and we were in a position to start construction in the fall of 2019. Yeah, which was really good news. Um, when I look back on that, and I see what we were able to do by way of timing. Um, 
it meant the world to us to be in a position to have a contract in place before COVID-19 hit. Right? Uh, you think about what happened to the supply chain, you think about what happened to costs and the escalation therein. Um, so, you know, um, everything happens for a reason. And I think that that um, conversation with that donor in that coffee shop on that day was, you know, universal influence because um, that, that it meant the world for us to be able to, um, to have that locked in before the world flipped on its head. Yeah. Um, did, did COVID, because I know it messed up so many things, but were, were you able to still keep, yeah, with, with, with building the building? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting and I'm, I'm second guessing myself. I'm, I'm quite certain it was the fall of 2019 that we were, were the, the spring there. I'm pretty sure it was 2019. I'm sorry. There's a blur after that. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, you know, just like everything else, there were some hiccups and in, in, uh, O's and, you know, what does staff on the construction site look like? Where do hand washing machines go? What does sanitization protocol look like? All those sorts of things. Um, but we were able to navigate that pretty smoothly. And so um, we were able to move forward uh, with all elements of construction uh, to position us to open the hospice in 2021. Yeah, which is incredible. But, you know, you think about you know, how did COVID change things? Well, you know, we were never able to have a grand opening for the hospice, you know, which is okay. Um, the thing that I think broke our heart the most was when we talked about a hospice and the idea of welcoming family and friends in a space, you know, there were restrictions at the time that um, really changed that experience. So, you know, I, I just want to say how very much we valued and appreciate the staff at the hospice who did their best to support families and friends in a way that they could, in a way that was in alignment with regulations, um, but in a way that was reflective of our original intention, which was, you know, if you're here, that means you're safe. And um, at a time that the world generally felt unsafe, that was just so very valuable. I, I hadn't considered that in terms of, and as, I, you know, working in a long-term care home, I, I saw that firsthand in terms of, you know, restrictions in terms of the number of, of family that could come. But the hospice is, is centered around the idea of like, you know, your family comes and then you've got these restrictions and it's like, oh boy, like, yeah. oh, that's tough. <laughs> it, it was tough, you yeah. know. Um, but again, we had some amazing, uh, still have those amazing care providers mm -hmm. in the hospice that, that did the best with a, goodness gracious, uh, not so great situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, like, you weren't just involved with the with the fundraising, but uh, we were just talking off off mic before. Like, like this is this is very close to your heart. Like, you were involved with um, with tub tub room design. Like, like, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, yeah. you know, it was it was a really interesting exercise, um, and we we talk about the hospice being you know built for the community by the community, and that started from inception, right? So we actually had. Um, uh, I think they're called P3 events, where you in, invite all realms of representation, um, let's, for this particular case, and, and end-of-life care. So we had music therapists, we had uh, patient family advocates, we had or patient advocates, we had palliative care docs, we had home care nurses, we had um, uh, a myriad of, of individuals and representatives from that spectrum of care. And the question was, what does the best hospice for Saskatoon look like. And it was really interesting because we worked with uh, architects, um, 
in these design conversations and they kind of sat us down, carte blanche, and they said, here's the space, here is some foam core post-its and glue guns, let's see what your first iteration looks like. And so my brain is, is very, well, it can be linear. <laughs> um, and you know, we were in a group and we said, well, we have so much space on the bottom, we have so much space on the top, it's, you know, let's put, uh, eight patient rooms here and seven on the bottom and we'll put them in a row and you know it'll be nice and ordered and then what it did it was just this inspired conversation and it said you know when we look back on um your mission which is you know glengarda where where life and death are met with dignity and compassion i think something along those lines um you know uh, one of our goals is that this doesn't feel like a hospital right but if you have you know patient room patient room patient room it's gonna to start to feel like a hospital. And so we sat back and we said, yeah, you know, you're right. So we, if you look at the hospice design now, you'll actually see that the rooms are kind of in pods, right? So we have the, the, the family spaces, the shared spaces in the center of the hospice. We have a stairwell in the middle of the hospice that's very much like a home. And then we have those patient rooms in pods at kind of the ends of the wings. And so it's not like you're walking through a hallway of patients, right? You have spaces where people are. And so, you know, those sentiments um, carried through the entire design. And yes, I was on the tub design room, uh, wherein we, you know, we, we designed it on paper first, and then we had giant bits of foam core and cardboard boxes, and we designed the spa room. We made sure that a hospital bed could get in and out. We made sure that the lift had a place to go. Um, you know, we brought in house coats from home to hang on the wall. We drew fireplaces and TVs, and you know, if you look in that spa room today, it's not too far from that original design which is pretty cool so yeah so yeah the spa room uh, is a spa room right it's not a tub room right it, um, it it acknowledges that this is a space of solace and safety and comfort for our patients and a tub is very aesthetic right it's very antiseptic right and so um, down to the idea of what the room would look like but up to the idea of calling in a spa room was all part of the concept and, and so much like everything that had it sounds like it has purpose and intent. And I appreciate you correcting me in terms of like, it's not a tub room, it's a spa room because it is so much more than just like the, the bathtub that's there. But when, so when you were able to walk, like you go from being part of the design team to actually walking in it, like what was that like for you? It was incredible. You know, um, it was, it was an interesting exercise. And I say this respectfully of, of the, the other people that were on my team. But I was the sole foundation representative here. And so I was in a group of healthcare workers. So when we started on the design, um, you know, sentiments like, oh, you know, we can make do with this, or, you know, this would be enough, or, you know, we could probably get by with this. I was the only person in the conversation going, guys, <laughs> we gotta think bigger, we gotta think better, right? Because if we're gonna do this, if this is kind of the first one, we're setting a standard. And we wanna inspire people when they're thinking about this project, right? We wanna think, goodness gracious, what a lovely room to walk into, other than, yeah, it's, it's okay, right? And so, you know, the concept like the blanket warmer, um, so all the towels are warm when they get out of the tub, um, the lift, the angel lift that's in the room, the fireplace that's in the room, the dimmable lighting, the TV that's in the room, the speakers wired in the ceiling, right? It's all intended to support that patient. And, you know, there is an aesthetic to it, but it comes down to, to the tub itself, um, you know, where the act of taking a bath for a patient in life care 
um, is extremely beneficial, right? It's, it's, uh, it's about um, acknowledging that that patient potentially may have not had a bath in several months. They're at home and they're getting sponge baths, right? Um, there are a lot of studies that have been done that correlate um, a reduction in pain medication, a reduction in stress, uh, an increase of sleep uh, for palliative patients who take a bath. So it's just about, you know, that room was intended to, to support that patient down, down to the tub itself, um, where, you know, those, if you haven't seen them yet, there's some beautiful bathtubs in the spa room. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting, though, how um, something that I think a lot of us maybe take for granted or think of something simple like, like having a bath can have so many positive impacts. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of the hospice campaign is, you know, and the hospice itself is you walk in the building and it's not really full of medical equipment. In fact, there is very little, little medical equipment in the hospice. It's a simple concept, but it changes the end-of-life care experience for the families and patients within it. Um, it's better for the system. Uh, it comes at a much smaller cost. Um, and it's, it's better for distribution of resources, right? We, we are putting palliative care patients um, in ICU, in the oncology unit, in the emergency department, and that's not where they belong. That's not the kind of care that they need. So it's a simple concept, but its impact is large. You've been very gracious with your time today, and, and you're an incredible storyteller, um, and thank you for sharing so much. Um, you said something, though, right at the start of our conversation about how when you applied for the job and you heard about, like, potentially a hospice, like, that was one of the, the main things that hooked you about it. Why, why, at such an early stage, was this so important to you? Well, you know, I, I think it was the hospice, the project, I... I could appreciate, but I think it was larger, um, you know, what St. Paul's Hospital represents, and it's caring for those most vulnerable. You know, we, it's easy to look past people, right? There's, there's every reason um, to not face difficult issues, because they're uncomfortable. Even talking about dying is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It is. Yeah. It, it, it really is. And, um, and yet, th th that's why I was so interested, too, about the, your community engagement part, because I was so, it, it seems like people, like, were willing to talk about it, but I think for some people, it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. And, you know, one of my, my standing taglines uh, is, you know, as we come into this world, so too shall we leave it, right? There is a, there's an entrance, there's the crescendo, and then there's the denouement, right? Uh, <laughs> we're all following that same trajectory. And so, you know, lending voice and space to, to make room for those vulnerable conversations, um, I think there's such value in that. And I think that uh, the impact that we can make by, you know, looking some of those issues and those challenges head on, um, is it's hard to measure, um, but it's it's big, and so you know, it it started off with the hospice, um, and I stay because of our commitment to caring for those most vulnerable. Um, yeah. Such a pleasure meeting you, Yasina, and, and thank you for the work that you and the foundation do. Um, and yeah, it, it, there's some incredible <laughs> some incredible <laughs> stories there, and and uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing it today.
You're very welcome. And you know, any opportunity that I have, um, I appreciate your gratitude towards me. I like to reflect that back onto the community because if the community didn't believe in what we were doing and if they wouldn't be so gracious, um, you know, I, I will say this about the Close to Home campaign. Um, we raised $21 million in 18 months. And um, when we were having those early conversations, um, everybody that we asked to make a gift to the hospice said yes. So I think, you know, um, why I've stayed as long as I have and why I enjoy this job as much as I do uh, is because when done well, um, we have the opportunity to take the resources that our community so graciously shares with us and leverage some pretty inspiring change, right? And so I think it's, it's my responsibility and it's, it's my pleasure, it's my honor um, to, to hold those resources that our community so graciously shares uh, and to be able to tell stories like this. Well, goodness gracious, look at the change that we impacted, the things that we did. So um, again, I accept your gratitude. I reflect it right back onto our community and to you for sharing these stories. A big thank you to Lucina Hickey, CEO of the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, for sharing not only the story of the hospice at Glengarda, but for sharing so many powerful stories about its importance here in Saskatoon and the impact it is having on so many people. If you want to learn more about the hospice at Glengarda and the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, you can visit stpaulshospital.org slash foundation. And don't forget that the next YXE Underground episode will take you inside the hospice at Glengarda to learn more about the important work being done for patients and families here in Saskatoon. That should come out in the next few weeks. I will be sure to post that information on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So be sure to follow YXE Underground on social media to get your updates. Now, before I go, I would like to acknowledge that this interview was gathered on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon.